you went up to the art museum or what did you walked past the art museum yeah wow, so, that's a good walk yeah it was Actually. it was like two two miles i think yeah so great uh-huh. following in uh, the, the greatest founder's footsteps uh, rocky balboa <laughs> all right welcome slavic connection listeners this is your host sergio glajar and i'm joined today by colin bendig and we have the honor today of interviewing dr john Connolly, a historian at berkeley so Fascism, in that sense, is modern, right? It's not a throwback to something. It's a, it's a retooling, it's, it's a reorienting of de- democratic rule through a proper, a proper democratic institution with, or instrument, which is the leader. It's not a typical Texas. You're listening to the Slavic Connection, brought to you by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies and the William P. Clinton Center for National Security. So, Dr. Connolly, maybe for the edification of some of our listeners, what uh, what is meant when we talk about decolonizing this, the, the field or the space? I mean, uh, what, what does that what does that really mean? What does it look like? Well, you know, I don't know. More generally, you know, I, I've always thought that East Europe itself is a is a, is a colonial imperial. Uh, today, perhaps post-imperial space. So, it's, so, so historically, the entire area that we talk about is an area that was dominated by large empires. And the history since the late 18th century is, is one of movements emerging to try to break away from those empires. That's at least how I interpret the history. So I, I think of East Europe, um, when we talk about decolonization, as being integrated into those broader global narratives. So I said yesterday, for example, that the early 19th century is characterized by the breaking away from imperial rule of Serbs, Serbs and Greeks, but also people throughout Latin America. It's almost the same time, the same inspiration. It's all in the shadow of the French Revolution and this idea that people should rule themselves, right? So I, I think of our, our region as being very well integrated into that, that global process. But it's basically one, the idea being that one should not be ruled by a foreigner, but one should rule oneself. And, and that's, that applies very well to uh, the area between Germany and, and the former Soviet Union, which I call East Central Europe. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I guess one of the biggest empires for these purposes would have been the Habsburg one, out of which uh, these nations sort of emerged after, after the First World War. Um, can you tell us a little bit about that process, just sort of this uh, sort of budding nationalisms uh, in the wake of the Habsburg Empire or as part of the Habsburg Empire even? Sure. So what, what you see is, you know, throughout the European continent, uh, really up to the borders of Russia, in the 19th century um, is a, a gradual lifting of, of censorship and pressures against public expression and public association from the 1820s onward, um, full outbreak of um, popular uh, mobilization, modern politics in 1848. And when 1848 happens, um, people throughout the region are able, so this is the region really from the Rhine River all the way to Russia, mm-hmm. are able to, to organize, to, to elect deputies and have these deputies go to places where they come together and try to drop constitutions, right? So there are a couple of places this happens uh, in, in, in Hungary and Austria and Germany, also in Italy. And what, what they do is they, they don't necessarily plan to break up the Habsburg Empire, but they want to have autonomous independent rule within the strictures of the empire. So the Czechs, for example, believe that what, what we currently call the Czech Republic, that region, uh, historic Bohemian kingdom, that should be a self-governing area of the Czech people. But under Habsburg rule, people really don't, don't imagine the end of the Habsburg Empire. There's, there's, there, there's an idea, they talk about confederation, they talk about, you know, a union of states, that union of peoples, 
But it's, it's with the idea that the Habsburgs will be uh, at the top of it. And in Germany as well, the deputies who try to plan a new Germany, they think of there being a king at the top of that Germany. So, so it's a gradual working away of the region from, uh, you know, from dynastic, uh, monarchical, traditional rule to a new period of popular sovereignty. So that's how I would describe it in general. So how do you see the formation of these movements taking place broadly, or I guess maybe more specifically could be interesting to within the, if you have any specific case studies that particularly excite you to think about during the late 19th century into the early 20th, because that's when they start to really take off. And, and you, as you were describing, and the, have this political implications up to this world war, moment of World War I, where finally, you know, we don't want the Habsburgs anymore. Or you go from, um, I mean, in the Czech case, you have, uh, Franciszek Polacki famously saying, if the Habsburg Empire didn't exist, we'd have to invent it, to uh, Tomasz Masaryk deliberately breaking Bohemia, Moravia, Silesia, and then Slovakia off. Um, mm -hmm. What sort of causes this shift in the goals of these movements of self-identifying peoples? Right. It's World War I, right? It's clear. Um, so Masaryk and others, uh, before the, even the people referred to the right in the national movement, like Kramaj, they, they all imagined the Habsburg Empire continuing. What they were fighting for really was the re realization of full Czech rights within the Kingdom of Bohemia, but under the Habsburg crown. But World War I convinces uh, Masaryk, at least, and then increasingly other Czechs, that the empire, the Habsburgs, are not serving the interests of the Czech or any other of the other peoples of the region. So they were in close contact with South Slavs, for example, with Romanians, uh, with Poles and others. And so there, there emerged this vision that what should happen is there should be a succession of republics that come in the place of the Habsburg Empire. But there was this relatively naive idea at the time not, not, not foreseeing what would come in the future, that, that it would be possible actually to, to, to bound these republics from each other and create true nation states, right? So the problem after World War I is that it turns out that you can't actually have a, a Czech or a Czechoslovak people or nation state without including a lot of other people, primarily Hungarians, Germans, and then some Ruthenians. So, the, so, so you know, this is something that the national movements don't, don't foresee the, the, the full extent of the problem of, of actually, uh, you know, once the Habsburgs are gone because... Habsburgs are, are, are thought to have not fulfilled their, their duty toward the peoples of the region by launching them into this incredibly bloody and pointless war. You have to keep that in mind. What World War I was really, was really, it was a, it was a Holocaust, really, of, you know, the small age, uh, destruction of, of a generation of young men and, uh, and a lot of property, a lot, uh, you know, a lot of family lives, et cetera, for no, for no reason whatsoever. But in the, in the new period that, you know, this, 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 this idea that there would be a, series of nation states, it, it proved to be really, um, you know, difficult to impossible to realize in the interwar period. So that's, uh, but, but, the, but the national movements themselves, I think, were, were relatively moderate, especially the Czech ones. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not a big critic compared to some people of the, of, of the, Czech, the Czech urge uh, for uh, local representation. You know, obviously people have differing views on this. If you talk to a Hungarian or, you know, Austrian, um, Romanian, you'll get you know, a different response. I think one of, the, one of the terms that's frequently used about this time period in this region is defensive nationalism. Yeah. Um, I'd be interested in hearing a little bit about what you think about that as a concept generally, and especially the, I guess, the potential for defensive nationalism to, of course, you know, eventually morph what, into... What, what period are you interested in particular? Um, I'd say, uh, I guess, from 1880s up to, up to 
maybe we can say the beginning of the Second World War. Interesting. So, so uh, I don't use that term to my knowledge, mm-hmm. but I mean, I, I think what, what you mean is defending of, 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 uh, of identity. So I, I guess there's just this, the theoretical notion of the distinction between a defensive nationalism and an offensive nationalism, oh. right? Where the latter becomes this sort of ultra-nationalism that has the potential of morphing into fascism, right? Because, I mean, we, we can identify a lot of the the roots of, uh, of these movements, right, in sort of the Romantic period in the 1800s and sort of national myth-making and stuff, and then... The, the, the way I've been, I've had it explained to me is, yeah, it becomes this defensive nationalism, which then has this uh, this potential to morph into something, you know, less less defensive. Yeah, it's interesting. So if you're interested in the, in the course to fascism, um, you know, it, it breaks out in a large way among Germans, but not among Czechs, if you're thinking of Bohemia. So it's interesting to wonder about why that's the case. And it does have uh, something to do with a, a defensive impulse among um, Bohemian Germans, which this is about a third of the population of Bohemia. Uh, in, in the summer of 1848, Bohemian Germans gather politically for the first time freely because there's really no free organization before that point under the time of Metternich. And they realize, in fact, uh, and they talk about the, the, the possibility of Untergang, mm-hmm. which means, you know, disappearance or, 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 or you know, um, demise uh, as, as a nation, right? This is something that the Czech national movement and the Hungarian national movement had been worried about much earlier around the 19th century. So, so in a sense, they, they all emerge as, as, as defensive movements. Mm-hmm. The idea is to, is, is, to, is to ward off this possibility of being submerged, being surrounded and swallowed, absorbed, maybe displaced by some other national movement, right? This is the fear of the Germans. So the, the Germans in Bohemia, who live on the, mostly in the border regions, but they're also very strong in, cer- in, in certain um, urban areas uh, in, in central central Bohemia, the traditional ruling class. They they, they worry that if democracy, democratic rule um, is, emerges, uh, prevails throughout the region of Bohemia, that they will be an underclass and and, and they will be outnumbered, and the Czechs will or- organize schools that will not permit their children to learn German and German and German culture and the like. So so what they do is they organize in defense. Of precisely culture, right, yeah, and and yeah. and their position also in the economy, and in the legal system, and this is this is basically the, the nationality battle that takes place throughout the late nineteenth century, but it does it does in the German case it, it does merge off into a rather extreme version of racist nationalism from the eighteen eighties. You know, there's this uh, Schönerer movement that emerges in the eighteen eighties. Schönerer is thought of as being a fore, forerunner to Hitler by some, and his movement actually produces. The first true precursor to the Nazi movement in 1903, it's in, it's in the Czech lands, actually, in, in what we currently call the, the Czech Republic. Now, why, why it emerges so strongly among Germans and, and not among Czechs is, is kind of an interesting question. I, I think it might have to do with sort of the imperial nature of the German national movement, because there's an idea that Germany, Germans don't want representation simply in Bohemia, but they want to be part of a much larger organization, which is the German Empire, Deutsche Reich, right? So the... So if you look back at 1848 again in Bohemia, you see the the German, and these are all Democrats, these are you know, liberals. The German Democrats in Bohemia are looking to, to, to Frankfurt. They're looking to a future of a, a large German state that they want to be part of. And the, uh, the Czechs are looking to basically Prague, mm. much more local, right? Mm. So uh, somehow this imperial ambition in the German case to be part of a German empire, which is how the Germans imagined their nation state as an empire, that you know that that, that had, had a kind of a demand, I think, on territory and on, on identity, um, you know, political loyalty. That I think maybe the Czech movement ne- ne- never um, summoned, and you know, that the major Czech figures that, that they say that we are by nature Democrats. That's kind of their line, the Masaryk line, right? 
it's not necessarily the line of, of, of Germans across the political spectrum. So that, that's just a, you know, but why, you know, why this originally defensive kind of movement that becomes indeed offensive? I think it's, I think the Czechs would, would indeed, they were satisfied with, with Czechoslovakia. Germans were not. So this relatively small, fa there is a Czech fascism as well, but this relatively small German fascism, it, it, it really grows, uh, you know, in, in Austria, Bohemia, and Germany after World War I because uh, of the unfulfilled desire to create this German uh, nation state, which, as I said, the German, German politicians, whether they were social democrats, Christian socials, Christians, um, you know, uh, nationalist conservatives, they all thought of the nation state as being an empire. This Deutsche Reich, right, as the, as the successor to the Holy Roman Empire. So anyway, that's... <laughs> no, that's fantastic. Thank you very much. Absolutely. I've heard argued, I'm not saying I agree with it, but I have heard argued that there's a difference between decolonization and the breakup of empires. What is your position on that sort of... Are they different? Is it the same thing? Well, they can indeed be different because you have a, there are different forces driving it. I mean, if you think of the breakup of the Russian Empire, it wasn't. It was partly driven by desires of some of the constituent nationalities in Russia to have self-rule, um, but it was it was it was you know largely driven by the inability of the state to maintain order and and, and to, to respond to the pressures of revolutionary organizations that uh, were preaching a very different kind of message than nationalism. It was basically socialism, right? Uh, although they adopted that, they, they became anti-colonial at the same time. Uh, but that's not what broke up the empire, you know. And, and the Habsburg Empire as well. It, it's not really it's not nationalism that broke up the empire. It was again the, the inability of the empire to, to summon the strength of, you know, basic obedience uh, when 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 its fortunes were at, at the at its at their low point. So in 1918, and, and it breaks apart. Germany does not break apart. I mean, there's no real true Bavarian or Saxonian or any kind of separatism. Germany stays together. So Germany is a nation state. Austria-Hungary was not, you know, and, and, so, and so forces broke it apart. Um, you know, at, at the same time, there were, there were, there were component uh, nationalities of Austria-Hungary that, that, that believed that their interests were not being served by the Habsburgs. And, you know, I, I think it's legitimate to talk of them as being um, uh, movements that were anti-colonial, right? The Hungarians, in fact, I think even used that word very early point. They didn't use it any longer after 1867, but um, yeah, but I, I think that they're related, but not, but not synonymous. How about that? So I'm interested in this uh, in this business of what you know whether the Habsburgs were in fact properly serving the interests of the various uh, cultural and ethnic groups under the empire. Because especially in in Transylvania, sort of anecdotally, I'll admit, but I, it seems to me like some vestiges of the Habsburg myth, right, have have really kind of survived in Transylvania, especially when. Transylvanians sort of distinguish their historical experience from that of like Wallachians, Oltenians, Moldovans, right? The, the sort of, I guess, common consensus narrative that I've heard at least is, you know, Transylvania is, is, is more developed, more economically powerful, whatever, because, uh, because it was under the, 
under the suzerainty of the of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as opposed to the Ottomans, for example. Uh, this is one explanation for whatever, you know, increased industrial strength and so on. So I, I'd be interested to hear your take on just sort of what the what the role of this kind of Habsburg myth business might be in, in all these complications we're talking about. Well, they, you know, they, they, they kept the peace they, and they kept order among um, peoples that were very diverse. And every state faces this problem of, of, of keeping peace among diverse populations. You know, in Habsburg Empire, what's, what's most evident is was the national cultural linguistic diversity, but other places have significant uh, social diversity, regional diversity, like the United States of America. And so they did that uh, reasonably well, although not, not by democratic means, uh, they kept the order for you know generations if not centuries um through you know i'm a big fan of maria Theresa, of course and mm-hmm. joseph ii right and right. these enlightened despots said and they're a different quality really than let us say their counterparts in russia or in prussia mm-hmm. right there's a more moderate kind of aspect to habsburg rule and and, and a determination to foster development it's for the, the sake of strengthening the state you know it's not done altruistically necessarily but but it had the had the effect indeed of of, of slow slow uh, steady progress of all kinds, right across the empire, um, all of its territories, including Bosnia, by the way. So so yeah. so that, of course, given what then followed, you know, nineteen eighteen, the, the turmoil of the twenties and thirties, fascism, totalitarian rule, all of that looked great in retrospect. It's a perfect candidate for nostalgia, right? And in, in, to today, right? So it's it's a governing kind of trend, I think, in Habsburg studies to keep emphasizing that the, that the empire held together. It was not a sick man in Europe. Ottoman. There's a similar kind of trend in Ottoman studies as well. Uh, served people's basic needs. Was responsive at, at, at a certain level. Held elections. Liberalized. Uh, permitted. You know, not just freedom of speech, but 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 growth of nationalism. Mm-hmm. This was this was something that the Habsburgs you know permitted. Did not impede, uh, certainly not in the Chislethanian area after the 1860s. So, you know, and then there's the, the great culture, the, all of that, right, uh, of, of various sorts that one looks back upon fondly. So there's that ha- side of the Habsburg Empire. But then there's the ruling elite that was, that was desperately concerned to maintain power and in, in a very competitive environment of the, you know, the late 19th, early 20th century and, and, a, and a concern with the growing power precisely of nationalism. Mm-hmm. And a desire to counteract that by by, uh, by punishing what was seen to be this 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 upstart state of Serbia, right? So there's there's kind of this obsession on, on the part of the elite, which which was not checked democratically, right? So the Conrad von Hutzendorf was not was not checked by you know by a parliamentary committee and his his ideas, his ambitions, and they then you know they, they drew the empire in, into a war that. I guess uh, you know it was a poor calculation. They believed that they believed they could win, and indeed, not, you know, not just subdue Serbia, but 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 include it. Right, that was the plan. It was actually to sort of expand in the direction of Serbia and include Serb the Serb state as part of a part of, uh, of Habsburg. But it's a crazy idea, really, and given that nationalism was a problem. To take on you know one more kind of national, far, far nationally foreign area that didn't want to be part of the Habsburg Empire. So that's that's the you know that that's what ultimately brought the empire to ruin was were the delusions of of, of its own ruling elite. And and I think this this was something you could also say about the German ruling elite was also an incredibly you know, German empire, the Imperial Germany was was as a state um, uh, presiding over over, over growth uh, and you know the building of cities, of industries, of education, of science. It's a great place, right, the German Empire before 19, you know, 1914, 1918, uh, before 1914, 
But again, there, there, there was this belief in, you know, in, in the ruling circles of, of Berlin that war between um, you know, the German area and the Slavic area, meaning Russia, was inevitable, that Germany was encircled, and that war was, was, was necessary, inevitable, and, and we, we'd, better, we'd better just face that fact and, 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 and therefore um, take the opportunity when it, when it arose. And that is why this so-called blank check was, was issued. In 1914, you know, from Berlin to, to Vienna, saying, "Go ahead with war." You know, this is a good moment for war, and you know, this, this war then dro- drove both of these states to, to to their their bitter end in 1918. So that would be my kind of general response. Well, in that, you can also sort of see the defensive nationalism turning to offensive nationalism. Of uh, we're encircled in the best mm-hmm. defense is a good offense, so we must go out. I don't think people like to think of themselves as offensive. You know, they can always, you can always frame it. No, that's precisely right. The Germans thought that they were fully justified. And this, this included the social Democrats. I mean, everybody but the very far left was, was entirely in favor of that war, precisely defensive. And into the 1960s, you know, that, that's why there's this controversy in Germany in the 1960s, the Fischer controversy. Mm-hmm. For, uh, you know, the, the claim by a, by a well-known historian that Germany actually uh, had expansive annexationist, annexationist goals aggressive goals in World War I. This was a claim that was, you know, cost a Fuhrer in the German historical profession in the 1960s. It, but it was based on the true, the true reading of, 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 of documents uh, indicating that Germany indeed had this uh, program in September of 1914 to create a huge space of German-Austrian you know, domination, um, political, military, cultural, um, economic. Right? So it was aggressive. <laughs> but, it, but, but the aggression was always thought of as somehow preserving Germany from, from, from the threat of, of, you know, of attack from two sides. So it's interesting how, how, how much of history takes place at the, at the level of the, of the fantasies of, of, of a state's leaders, you know, and how uh, those, those two entities could, could have easily continued had they, had they not launched the region into war. Um, so I would, you know, focus a lot of the explanation on these, these um, um, imperial ruling houses that were not responsible to democratic opinion. And this was, of course, also the critique of Woodrow, of Woodrow Wilson um, after the war and other Democrats, you know, Masaryk, who, who saw eye to eye with Wilson in this regard. So again, with these sort of different like manifestations of nationalism, I guess, I'm interested in hearing your opinion on how, how, do, how do we get kind of from these um, sort of self-governing, self-identifying movements, for example, from within the former Habsburg Empire, how do we get from that like, you know, wanting wanting a sort of Czech land where Czechs represent Czechs in parliament and so on and so forth, you know? How do we get from that to, to the urge to purify or to cleanse, right, the nation state of, of I don't know, foreign elements, right? There's always this language of, of this sort of biological language of, of illness, of disease, of virus. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm asking a, a sort of intellectual history question or what, but but if you have if you have any ideas on this, on this transition, right? Because I'm thinking specifically again with Transylvania, yeah, after the Treaty of Trianon, the Romanian territories are unified, right? And this dramatically increases the the population of various minority groups in the Romanian like polity or whatever, right? Uh, especially, uh, especially Jews from Transylvania. And this sort of starts these anti-Semitic student movements in the early 1920s where Again, this sort of replacement uh, concern that you were alluding to earlier, um, and and I, th- I think it's so interesting that so much of the focus there was on on the fact that the numerus clausus was was lifted from the universities for Jews. So anyway, 
what do you make of this kind of uh, this kind of progression in, in at least some of the territories that we're talking about, but certainly Romania, right? Of of this desire for self determination, so on and so forth. But it turns into this this cleansing, purifying uh, uh, madness. Yeah, that's a great question. But you know, you, what you've done is you, you've brought in into the discussion this uh, uh, something that's that's we haven't talked about, and it is, is arguably distinct, which is anti-Semitism. Yeah. So, so we've been talking to this point about the nationality struggle in Bohemia, which is a, a good place to to think of this because it's relatively focused and it, and, it, and it encompasses a lot of the issues that uh, you know are relevant throughout the region, going from the Baltic states all the way down to mm-hmm. Albania and Greece, right? Mixed areas of mixed population where nationality movements emerge claiming the same territory. And then, and then there are the Jews, right, who, who are spread throughout the region, who don't have the, uh, at least, uh, have the, there, there's no program for a homeland for Jews within the region, right? The, right. the, the program that, that emerges is for Jews to settle in Palestine, modern, modern Zionism. So what you see, you, you just, what you've mentioned in, in Romania is something that you can see also throughout the region, which is that as as the the, the, uh, the strictures are lifted on on you know, Jewish uh, life in all kinds of institutions, educational institutions, you know, in, in business, in universities, as those strictures are lifted, Jews had traditionally been been you know, relegated to uh, very specific roles in society, even places of, of cities where they could live, right? The ghetto of Vienna, the ghetto of Rome, etc. As, as Jews ent- enter modern life. The perception emerges, you know, in, in Germany very strongly, but also in Poland, to a lesser extent in Hungary proper, right, in the 19th century. And we could talk about why that's the case, that there's a, there's a quote-unquote foreign element that is taking the place of our place within these institutions that are crucial to the, to, to, to the, to the national, to our national future, right? It's not, it's not really um, that evident in 1848, you know, in, in the liberalizing trend um, of that year and of Jews actually becoming part of national movements there, you know, they're, they're in the Frankfurt Parliament. They're also in, they're in Vienna when there, there's a parliament in Vienna that, and then that moves to Kremsey, uh, you know, after, I guess, the fall of 1848. Jew, Jews are, are present in these rep, these assemblies as as Germans, right? As German, and as some of the most prominent people, you know, are German nationalists, both places. And, and also in the early, early 1880s, uh, you know, as liberalism is, is sort of failing, is, is, is under pressure, economic pressure because of uh, an extended depression in 1870s to the 1890s. Liberalism is under political pressure. The response initially uh, for more, for sort of more popular representation in Europe, it includes Jews. So in, in the Austrian Empire as well. Uh, so the so-called Linz program of 1882, in which there's there, there's a demand for um, for universal manhood suffrage, right? It's a very progressive kind of demand, and also for more social insurance, you know, social better social policy. It's a, uh, but it, but it groups people from right to left. Uh, on on the right, this guy Schoenler, who we've already talked mm-hmm. about, right? But also on, on the left is a guy named Adler, Victor Adler, who is Jewish, uh, but he's standing up for German German nationalism, for manhood suffrage, and for social policy. Right? And they're all together in the early 1880s. Right. And then by the mid, then they begin breaking apart. And this, and this anti, this, this anti-Semitic kind of argument, this racist argument, this argument about cleansing, about, about pollution, all the, mm-hmm. this biological, it coincides with social Darwinism. Right. It all starts emerging about this time. So that, you know, by the 18, 1890s, then you have, you have, uh, student unions, these student clubs, uh, Burschenschaften in, in Austria and Germany that are excluding Jews. For the first time, it's that precise period. Wow. It's this very same time this is happening in, in Poland, by the way. 
I, I urge students helpfully to, to combine Brian Porter's book about the rise of this Polish anti-Semitic nationalist right in the 1880s with Karl Szorski's book about Austria. It's the very same time, right? And so, so, this, so this rhetoric is, 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 is strongly present of, of, for some reason, this, this, this idea of you know, purification, it doesn't, it doesn't focus so much in that period, I think, among Germans and Czechs. Uh, I think that's not so much the, the language. It's, it, it's more one of control, of ownership, right? I mean, you could even do probably a very helpful story of, of how the nationalist rhetoric uh, differs, you know, Germans against Czechs, uh, let's say Germans against Jews. It would be it'd be a, a, a bit more um, racial, biological when, when, when aimed toward Jews. There's an idea among the German and Czech national movements that they're struggling for the same people. So it's not so much purification right. as, as as ownership. And, and in fact, there's there's a whole rhetoric about nationaler Besitzstand, yeah. national ownership, right? And it, it it applies, of course, to actual ownership of property and, and, and money, but it also refers to sort of people. Parazara has written very interestingly about this, you know, about policies to try to, both movements to, to, to take claim, hold of the of young people. But, uh, you know, the period, so just to conclude, so Sergio, you were talking about the post-World War I period. Yeah. It's, it's the time when also there's a Polish national state, there's a Romanian national state, there's a Hungarian national state. And, and the idea, you know, among some nationalists on, on the right is that, look, we have, our, we have national independence now. Let's go to our universities and half the students are Jewish. There's something wrong with that, right? Even though they're fully ro- Romanianized, they're, right. they're, they're, they're Magyarized, they're, in fact, they're fierce Magyar patriots, they're Polish patriots at the same time. Um, and, 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 and so, you know, through, through, through much of the political spectrum, you see an urge to, to try to meet this, this supposed threat, but through demands of, uh, indeed, what, what, what are called purification. The anti-Semitic movements are very similar in that regard uh, in the interwar period. They're very strong. They're very, you know, they're they're qualitatively new. They're directly associated with with the the emergence of the nation state. It was something that concerned, deeply concerned Hannah Arendt in her post-war reflections on this period. There's there's a role of anti-Semitism in, in this, and, and I think it's it's a challenge to try to understand it its dynamics as being related but separate mm-hmm. from from the other sort of national contests. Yeah, that's interesting because now I'm thinking of of sort of uh, like different kinds of anti-Semitism uh, simultaneous, you know, uh, in the region, right? Like obviously this this sort of social Darwinist, uh, medical, biological uh, kind of anti-Semitism was certainly prevalent in Romania. But just as an example, in Romania, it was they seemed to develop also a really distinct like theological anti-Semitism, right? There was this pretty explicit linking of all of the Jews with Judas Iscariot and, uh, and this creation of like, of, of the Jew really as Satan. In fact, uh, Mihai Antonescu very famously in 1941 outside of Odessa sent that telegram to the Council of Ministers in Bucharest that, you know, the, the, this war and particularly the battles around Odessa have uh, shown me that this is a war against Satan and that Satan is the Jew. And I do not care if we go down in history as barbarians, which became the title of a very good Radu Jude movie from 2018. So I'm just, I wonder how you get to that, how you get to be able to say something like that, really. Well, the simple answer is it's, it's emerging of modern anti-Semitism with, with traditional Christian anti-Judaism. Right, right. That's the simple answer, you know, but, but I think so, so, you know, there's some clarifications that are necessary. So, yeah. so, so, you know, uh, what is true is that before, you know, modern anti-Semitism emerges, it was, it was technically, it was actually uh, possible for, in all Christian de- denominations for Jews to decide to, um, you know, to accept Christianity through baptism and, and there was no discrimination. There's a story about Spain, which is, you know, a separate story, which is not really related to the Central European story where Jews, after 
conversion in the you know in the, in the 15th century, in fact, did face discrimination. So there, there is there there are cases where Jews who converted to Christianity were subject to discrimination, but this is not really the case in say the Habsburg lands, right? So if somebody converted to to Christianity, you know, like um, the Mendelssohn family, uh, you know, this is in Germany, uh, 19th century. I don't know about the family of Karl Marx, but you know, there there are many many cases where Jews convert to Christianity and then they they enter quote unquote, you know, bourgeois, mostly Christian society. And, 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 and their Judaism is perhaps known about, but it's not a subject of discrimination. So that's what changes with modern anti-Semitism is that, is that Ju- Judaism is thought of as, as being something that's, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a quality that people were born with and don't lose, yeah. right? And so that, and, and, and it's, a racial, it's a racial quality. It's in the genes. It, it causes Jews to be certain ways that are different from Christians. And there's no way to eradicate that other than eradicating the Jew, right? That's modern anti-Semitism. Right. Now, what happens in, in, in practice is, is that modern anti-Semitism takes on board a lot of a lot of the stereotypes and prejudices that emerged over over time in Christian society. Some of which are religious, some of which are you know more kind of cultural, economic stereotypes. But you know some some of the religious ones are related to you know the idea of Jew as you know uh, as, as Judas Iscariot, as you said, so as as a traitor, as you know as, as somebody that that, that um, cannot be trusted, as as somebody who also lives under a kind of historic curse. For being for being Jewish um, and, and failing to recognize the Jewish Savior Christ, right, who, who was Jewish, right? So so what you see in Nazi Germany is is, is Hitler occasionally he doesn't usually use Christian arguments very often. Right. Very very it was he and you know the top people around him were they were very hostile to Christianity, although they came in Christian households. You know people like Heydrich or Goebbels they were mm-hmm. intensely anti anti Christian. But he would he would sometimes say that I am doing the work of of providence. Right, that that the Jews, you know, I'm not sure the exact rhetoric of Hitler himself, but he's he he would be saying that there, there's a problem of the Jews not accepting Christ. This is this is an age old problem that we are de- we are we are we are dealing with this problem. You know, there, there's there was actually a very significant element of the Protestant Church that went along with that, the so-called Deutsche Christen. So there's a merging of of you know of, of traditional and, and in Hungary, I'm not Hungary, and in Romania as well, right? There's a very, very strong element in the Orthodox Church that goes yeah. along with uh, the anti-Semitic. Absolutely. Yeah. Because it emerges from, I mean, really this sort of folk village orthodoxy, right? That has all sorts of fairy tales and things like this. Yeah, no doubt. No doubt. Yeah, and I mean, for example, St. John Chrysostom, right? One of the yeah. most important church fathers and in Romanian and I think most of the Orthodox lands uh, known as the mouth of gold, right? I mean, if you read the homilies against the Jews there, it is, it is quite something. Well, this is what, so, so when the Catholic Church in 1965, and this is, I actually wrote a book about, about mm-hmm. this. So when it decided to, to break with this, uh, this tradition of anti-Judaism, you know, of, of portraying the Jews as, as, as basically, um, deficient until they accept baptism, it had to actually go all the way back to scripture and bypass all, all of these, you know, what, what are called the church fathers, yeah, yeah, you know, yeah, so yeah. the tradition, wow. which is an amazing thing for the, the church, which, which, you know, exists in some ways as representing tradition that, that supposedly is you know, directly related or following, you know, Christ and the apostles, the apostolic tradition, mm-hmm. right? Um, you know, that, that that's, so they went right back to Paul. <laughs> but, <laughs> no, they by- bypassing, you know, everyone, including, you know, Aquinas and uh, August, Augustine is also not, not present in that statement. And there's nothing. It's, it's, it's all scriptural. It's all, it's all, you know, a bit of, you know, what Christians call Old Testament and a bit of New Testament, especially Paul's letter to the Romans. So, so that's, you know, that's interesting how, you know, this is a, it was a wrong way that the church took for a very long time before, before correcting it. 
I, I have one question uh, that maybe we can use to begin to conclude, but it, it occurred to me, you know, we, we sort of started the conversation with the Habsburg Empire. We started the conversation with actual emperors and kings, and we've gotten to, to Hitler and company. And I wonder, do, do you have any sense of some kind of, I don't know, historical relationship between sort of the king as monarch and then the eventual fascist chief or whatever we can call him, you know, the, do you see any importance there? I mean, it, you know, this, this concentrated power and the figure of the monarch, I mean, is, is a fascist chief effectively a, an absolute monarch in the say, you know, I, I'd be curious to hear what no, you make very, of that relationship. I think they're yeah. very, they're very different, you know, and this is why the Italian case is sometimes not thought of as being totalitarian because they maintain the king. Right. You know, Hitler was not a king. He was not an emperor. He, he was the mouthpiece of the people, right? And this is what a king never was. The king was not a mouthpiece of the people. The, the king, you know, was, was legitimated by, you know, his, and sometimes, you know, Maria Theresa was the king of Hungary, right? Right, 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 right. Uh, you know, her um, um, legitimacy stem, stemming from God, basically, right? The right to rule. So it, it was... It was, in a sense, you know, for the people, but not of the people. Mm -hmm. But Hit Hitler, you know, was 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 supposedly of the people, for the people, not not so much by the people. But but you know, so I have a, a friend, a colleague at, at Berkeley, um, Dylan Riley in sociology, who describes. He talks about fascist democracy, right? So fascism emerges actually from from the urge uh, to represent society more effectively than a parliamentary democracy could by different mm -hmm. means, but it claims to do so. In, in, in the name of society, in the name of the people, um, you know, in German, the folk, in, in Polish, the narod, right? Um, and so that's, again, it's very different from monarchical rule. It's, so, so, so fascism in that sense is modern, right? It's not a throwback to something. It, it's, a, it's a retooling. It's, it's, it's a re, reorienting of de democratic rule through a proper, a proper democratic institution with, or instrument, which is the leader. Right. But the, but the leader is, is said to embody the will of the nation. So it's, it's very different. Right, right, right. No, no, no. P point absolutely taken. But I, I, I get the impression this is this is sort of the, I don't know, the, the appearance, the rhetorical side of things. But yes. in terms of actual exercising sort of sovereign power, I, I, I do wonder, you know, I mean, sure, like how we justify the legitimacy, right? Creating the legitimacy no, really, is the whole thing. It's a really but. good question because it also has to do with the fact that he spoke in terms of the Third, third Reich. Which is my current kind of kind of subject. I'm interested actually, precisely in this, this imperial tradition. Mm -hmm. um, I'm just thinking. Uh, so they did. They did not take any of the imperial insignia, like the crown, any of that stuff. They right. could have easily done it. They didn't do that. But they did. So Hitler did occasionally make reference to to the historic mission that he felt that he that, that, that he represented, which which was to expand German imperial rule in, into the East in a way that was interrupted in the Middle Ages. So he, so the, do you know what they called the the offensive on Soviet Union? Operation Barbarossa, right. right? So it was the idea was to go back. Uh, so he stood in, in, in a sense in the, in the lineage, but he would have, ne would have never associated himself with the Habsburgs, who were obviously the final kind of Holy Roman emperors. In fact, for centuries, they right, were Holy course, Roman yeah. emperors, right? So, so they were they were you know they're very very careful to. You'd never see Hitler in an imperial robe, right? right? He was right, he was right, also right. he was always kind of a warrior, I guess, and that, that's how they portrayed the medieval. German emperors to which the, you know, the tradition had, had been interrupted. They were not openly anti-Habsburg, but he hated the Habsburg ruling class precisely because it, w it was above the nationalities, right? And, and, and thought of itself as having a different claim on legitimacy. Uh, but his, and, and keep in mind also that his rule was, was, was far more total. 
there was always a sense that the, you know, that the, that the, um, the monarch was, was, was somehow bound to laws even, right? So that it's a, it's a, it's a Rechtsstaat, right? Yeah. The Habsburg Empire, which is again something, the reason that, that people look back upon it fondly is that there was a sense of, of, of limits, right? I mean, Ultimately, the, the emperor the emperor took the the, the, you know, the empire into this war, which you know which was irresponsible and should not have happened. But beyond that, it, it was it was a relatively moderate, non absolute political structure. Francis Joseph, as you know, intended to, to to rule entirely by himself. You in the eighteen fifties, this absolutist period, and he learned that he, could, he couldn't do it. And so, what, what followed from the constitutional period follows directly from that. And Hitler was not bound by anything. He was not bound. To any constitution, to any you know, to any, to any laws, uh, to anything but himself. Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, and I'm thinking of Ernst Kantorowicz's King's Two Bodies, right? And the section on Lex Animata, the animated law, and thinking of that in terms of the the Führer Prinzip, right? Mm-hmm. He utters the words, "It is law." I mean, that is literally <laughs> law incarnate, right? It's the animated law. So th- that's kind of what, what made me... Uh... Yeah, but it's something, you know, this is just an, uh, my off-the-cuff... Uh, sure. It's something that one could actually pursue, I think, in a, in a creative way. De- de- all democratic societies at, at least try, try to connect themselves, not all, but, you know, many, maybe maybe most, they try to connect themselves to this, this, this earlier principle of what you would call kind of aristocratic legitimacy right. or, uh, you know, like the fact that we have a Senate that, you mm-hmm. know, is, is elected only every six mm-hmm. years. Or that you know that there's a president in, in in Germany, or that there's a king still in England, or else in other other democratic societies, right? There's there's an idea that there need, needs to be some some ultimate ultimate referent to legitimacy that is not derived simply from the people, yeah, and, and in yeah. fact, you know, democracy needs needs to be controlled in various ways, and that was that was one of the controls that the founding fathers. I don't know if that's still used. We still talk the founders, I guess we. Would. Yeah, yeah, right, right. <laughs> uh, that that they, they they thought was crucial. Uh, yeah, we're actually meeting not far from where they met. We are in yeah, Philadelphia. Oh, right. Spooky. <laughs> <laughs> Spirit of Benjamin Franklin lingers. Exactly. Yeah, I was just thinking. You know, that's why it's so easy to find your way around Philadelphia. Is that he designed the city as these grids? I think it's really cool. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. We just walked down the, 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 the Philly's Champs-Élysées, the Ben Franklin Boulevard. It is literally the Champs-Élysées. Yeah. If you put the maps on top of one another, it's the exact same yeah, thing. Yeah, that wasn't. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs>